So that, that particular love for the Australian bush comes through in my writing because I have a real passion for it and it sustains me. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Julie Jansen, author of the novel Benevolence. And I really enjoyed writing it from an indigenous point of view because it was such an important story of the, of the early arrival of the colony. Julie Jansen is a playwright, novelist, and award-winning poet. Jansen, who is a Burra woman of the Derig Aboriginal Nation, is co-recipient of the 2016 Ujuru New Knuckle Poetry Prize and winner of the 2019 Judith Wright Poetry Prize. Jansen self-published two novels before the debut of her critically acclaimed book, Benevolence. Jansen has written ten produced plays, including two at Belvoir Saint Theatre, Black Mary and Gunji's, Two Plays, published by Aboriginal Studies Press in 1996. Her novel, Benevolence, was republished by HarperCollins in August 2022. Well, I wonder if you could start by telling us more about the Derig uh, Aboriginal nation. Where is their homeland, and what are some of the significant cultural practices um, that they practice? Okay, well, uh, Derig nation are my father's people, and therefore my people. And uh, the particular clan my father came from is the Burrabarungal clan of Darug Nation. And uh, we are situated on the Hawkesbury River, which is to the west of Sydney in New South Wales, Australia. And it was the very first area of colonial invasion for Australian Indigenous people was along that Hawkesbury River area and the area around Sydney now. Uh, Sydney people often call themselves the Eora, the Eora is actually means we are the people. The actual name of the nation is Darug Nation. What is the status of the Darug Nation today? It's it's diverse. Uh, we're kind of the ground zero for invasion uh, in Australia in, in 1788 when the first uh, colony was established by uh, Governor Arthur Philip brought um, a series of ships to Australia loaded up with convicts to establish um, a convict colony in New South Wales. Uh, they referred to it as Botany Bay, but fairly soon moved the colony to a place called Sydney Cove. And Sydney Cove is right in the heart of Darug Nation. Today, it's, it's a very dispersed nation as such. Uh, we, uh, there are about 40 clans of Darug Nation. And the people I know most about are the Burrabarungal people up on the Hawkesbury River. And uh, we came from an area which was called a breadbasket for the early Sydney colony, uh, established in as early as um, 1796. 
was established as a farming area to grow corn and wheat for a little colony that was already starving within the first 10 years of, of colonization. And, and you'll have to forgive my ignorance. You know, I live in the United States and I'm very familiar with uh, the process of the United States government uh, taking lands from native peoples and uh, through a system of treaties and reservations. And now eventually um, native cultures are banding together and, and trying to reclaim their rights, reclaim their lands. Uh, what's going on in Australia as far as tearing, you know, working against that legacy, trying to uh, restore uh, those native cultures and native lands? Well, there never was a treaty in Australia. In fact, uh, the British government declared Australia in about 1837, they declared it to be terra nullius. Terra nullius means an empty land. So there was no acknowledgement there were Indigenous people here. And uh, we're not really sure what the numbers would have been, but there could have been um, a few hundred thousand people scattered all over Australia in various um, various tribal areas. We don't usually use the word tribe. It's a bit of an old-fashioned word here. We tend to use the word nations. Uh, but there was never a treaty, and for the last 20 years, uh, Indigenous people here in Australia have been calling for a treaty. And uh, only recently, with a, a new government, which is a government that we'd refer to it as a left-wing government, the, op- the opposite of the Conservative government that was voted out, uh, have promised to, to honour uh, the request for Indigenous rights with a, what is called a makarata. And a makarata is a, a statement of understanding. And here it's called the Uluru Statement of the Heart because it was discussed by many Indigenous nations from Australia in Central Australia near the Great Rock, which we call Uluru. And this statement is going to be enshrined in the Australian Constitution to acknowledge Indigenous peoples' rights. It's still not a treaty. Uh, There's no mutual obligation. But nevertheless, once it's enshrined in the Constitution, uh, we hope that that will mean that the uh, land rights and, and other issues that to do with Indigenous people in this country will become more centralised under the federal government. Up to this time, it's, it's been pretty well controlled by different states with different rules, and some states uh, are doing the right thing. Like down in Victoria, there is a Reconciliation and Truth-Telling Commission, which only started up this year, where people can come in and and uh, describe their experiences of themselves or their grandparents or their great-grandparents. And a lot of that involves very similar kind of history to both the United States and Canada, where a lot of Indigenous children were taken from their families and often mostly never seen again. And those children were put into schools, mission schools and on reserves to be taught to be white people and to be servants. And uh, this has caused a great deal of pain and uh, tragic uh, disruption of of families in this country. And so uh, we are hoping eventually that each state will have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to to allow people to speak about what they've suffered and allow them to receive some compensation for the families that were torn apart. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And it, it does sound very similar to what's going on here in the United States. I don't know on the, if it's on the same scale or not, but the U.S. did recently release a report about the practice of taking um, Native children from their families and, and forcing them into to, uh, federally funded boarding schools. So that's, yes. that's interesting. Well, so I want to thank you for talking about that. But of course, we're here to talk about your novel, Benevolence. Um, so tell me a little bit about your main character, Murraging, and 
where did she grow up? What, what, what setting did you place her in? What time period? Um, and, and why did you put her in that setting? What was the story you were trying to tell with her? Right. Okay, well, luckily, Benevolence is going to be released by HarperCollins in the United States on August the 16th, which is great for me. It's the first time I've ever had an interna- a book released internationally. Uh, Benevolence came out of a, a, a long desire for me. I grew up with my father, um, who is an Aboriginal man who never identified as such. He was a uh, dark-skinned, uh, gorgeous man, incredibly capable in the bush, could shimmy up a tree and cut wild honey out of a gum tree and and uh, catch fish and prawns and oysters. We'd all go gathering oysters with him. But he lived in the city and in those days, if an Aboriginal man identified as such, he couldn't hold a government job. So my dad kept a secret so he could keep working as a, as a firefighter. Or here in Australia, we called it the fire brigade. And he had that job. And if any of that secret about his background came out, he would have lost his job. So uh, we grew up uh, uh, basically being told that that was a secret we didn't talk about. So when I became um, an adult, a young adult at only about 20 years of age, I decided I really wanted to find out more about the Aboriginal background of our family. And so I started to do a lot of research and I went to live with a community out along the Darling River in in northern New South Wales where I met a lot of wonderful Aboriginal aunties. We call, people here are called aunties and uncles even if we're not related. And uh, and they taught me a great deal about um, Aboriginal culture and and existence and how to how to provide the land to provide the rivers to provide the you know how to go out and hunt a, an emu or or a kangaroo or catch fish in the river, and uh, I began this long long journey of learning a lot of the things that I didn't know about and the cultural rules and uh, the way to treat people and kinships, and I basically spent the rest of my life learning all of this information in order to acknowledge my own Aboriginality and my own Indigenous identity. And the book Benevolence came out of doing a lot of historical research around Sydney. And uh, I was very interested to find out about my uh, three times great grandmother, who uh, grew up on the on the Hawkesbury River. And I knew that she was the beginning of the story after colonisation, which was white people went to live out on the Hawkesbury River in about 1800. And so I knew that was the beginning of the story that I could trace because prior to that, there's no records because the records are held in memory and song and stories by Indigenous people and, and of course, not, not written down. So um, I went to look for her and, I've, and I found enough evidence to, to, to begin to write not a memoir but historical fiction because I'm a creative writer. I write novels. Uh, which was inspired by the information I learnt about her. And uh, at one moment I received a a certificate in the mail from births, deaths and marriages, which named the father of my two-times great-grandmother as a reverend of the Anglican Church out in Windsor. And I was most surprised because it seemed such an unlikely fathering because it would have been a a real taboo about an Anglican minister having a relationship with an Indigenous woman in those days. And he was a single man and she was a single woman, and a, a, a child eventuated. So I thought this is, was, a, was a, a terrific story, which would be really interesting investigating. So that's, I began the, to write Benevolence, starting with the, uh, this, when this child was conceived. But in order to do that, I needed to understand where her mother came from. And in the end, I think it's going to be a trilogy. Um, I'm working on the second part of Benevolence at the moment, which will be called Compassion. But um, 
you know, going back into that history, spending a lot of time in libraries and a lot of time talking to Aboriginal elders along the Hawkesbury River and other parts of Sydney, and various crumbs of that story began to come together uh, to, in order to create a historical fiction that was vivid but very much based in historical reality and truth. Well, I think that's fascinating just to hear you talk about how far back you have to go to create um, something like this because, you know, as you mentioned, you had to get to know your own heritage first and then you had to get to know some of the stories and oral tradition and finally, you know, historical documentation. So uh, congratulations on all that work you put in, not just to, you know, enhance your own life, but to create the story that can share with that you can share with others and, and teach others yes yeah well I think it's always important for human beings if we can possibly find out who we are and where we come from and, and what our roots are it, it, it's a powerful way to make us uh, mentally more well and to uh, you know to face the realities of a modern world if we actually understand that long path of where we've come from uh, it's an extraordinary um, amount of knowledge which is actually out there for people to discover but uh, you have to be um, single-minded about it, possibly obsessive. <laughs> and I, t I can be like that when I'm doing research. I was actually very, very lucky. I, was, I benefited by being employed by the University of Sydney and the history department. I, I, my background has been a, as a university lecturer and as a teacher in Indigenous schools. And I was employed by an old friend um, as a, uh, a senior Aboriginal researcher on a project called the History of Aboriginal Sydney. .edu.au, available anywhere on a click at a mouse. And this extraordinary project was five years long, and he, being a very good friend of mine, he said, well, Julie, you must start with your own family and I'll send you out to the Hawkesbury. Uh, and I was being paid as a researcher. So, you know, often if you've come from a family that has uh, struggled financially, you always need to have a job. So I couldn't really do this research without the uh, the benefits of working for that university. So while I did all that research out there about all the families that came from the Hawkesbury area, all the Darag people and all the Baraburungu people and the, the associated clans, uh, I was able to also find out uh, about my own family. And uh, so it, it was a great privilege uh, to be able to, able to do that. And uh, something that not everybody can do. I have found now when I'm writing a subsequent novel to Benevolence called Compassion, which uh, Compassion's from 1810 to 1835, and this next novel's from um, 18, about 1835 to 1860. And um, I found that further up in history towards modern times, there's more and more information. There are more birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates. There's an online newspaper here in Australia, you can get all the newspapers, it's called Trove, and you can get every newspaper that was published in Australia right up until recently, all online at a click of a mouse. So uh, you, you can find extraordinary information you are not expecting. And uh, when I searched for my two times great grandmother, Mary Thomas, and I found her the years about 1850, she came up three times. The first time she was taken to the magistrate's court for stealing nine fowls, that's nine chickens. The next time she was in the magistrate's court for stealing a herd of cattle. And the third time she was in the magistrate's court for stealing champion horses. And I, and I thought, what a career. <laughs> and so um, she became the centre of my imagination for the, the next novel I'm going to write, uh, one of 
and she must have had the gift of the gab like my dad did and like I did because each time she was in court, she talked her way out of being sent to jail, but her male accomplices were all sent to jail. So uh, she must have been an extraordinary woman. So I'm really enjoying writing about her and uh, I'm allowing my imagination to run wild with what kind of person she must have been. Well, she, yes, she must have been pretty bold. She t took it one step further every time. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the craft of fiction. Uh, I read from one reviewer that said that um, the atmosphere crafted by the author is so evocative, I felt like I could smell the richness of the eucalyptic, the dusty dryness of eaglehawk time, the smoke of the campfires, the chatter of the cicadas, and the warbles of birdsong on the breeze. Can you talk about how you were able to develop your writing to a point that you could bring the setting uh, to life like that? I spend a lot of time in what Australia we call the bush. In the United States, you mostly refer to in the forest. Uh, I grew up, uh, strangely enough, in Sydney, but right near some wild bushland by a river. Uh, my father always felt very comfortable by a river because that's where he'd been brought up and it's where his generations of Aboriginal family had been brought up by rivers. And uh, by a river, you can get oysters and fish and crabs and you could live from a river. Uh, so I, I spent a lot of my childhood, every day after school and every single um, school holidays, our father would take us camping in the bush. And so that love of the bush, which almost seems to be innate in, in people like me, and for most Aboriginal people I know, it's quite inside them. And uh, that passion for it, the, the smells, the taste, but also that it's like a great big supermarket. You can walk through the bush and you can pick up um, lily pillies and, and jibang, uh, uh, wild yams and wild honey. There's so much food and grains that can be had walking through the bush or, or if you're by the sea as well. He, Dad loved to fish in the sea. So that, that particular love for the Australian bush comes through in my writing because I have a real passion for it and it sustains me and if I if I don't go bush or here we'd say to go on country which is a back to your true country which usually means your tribal country uh, and I and smell that bush and go walking and uh, then uh, it, it keeps me alive it, it, my father used to say he was always happiest when sitting by the ashes in a fire in the bush and he would take us three children camping down on the Hawkesbury river country, which a lot of it's very wild country with stony escarpments of sandstone. A lot of it uh, hasn't been turned into farms. There's a lot of national parks around Sydney and, and all the way through to the Hawkesbury. And he would take us camping and we'd sleep the night in a cave and he'd make the beds out of bracken ferns and he'd pile the bracken ferns up with army greatcoats because he had been in the Second World War and he had army greatcoats from the Second World War. And we would sleep on the bracken fern and you'd wake up at about five in the morning and be sitting over the fire um, cooking something up out of a tin or some fish or some eggs or whatever it is he'd managed to bring down the track. And uh, one night in the middle of the night, my younger brother, who was only about five, woke up and there was a, a python snake hanging from the the roof of the cave, hanging over his bed. Of course, my little brother was terrified. And my dear father just said, said to all of us, he said, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's a python. It won't hurt you. It's a, a diamond python. It's just come to see who's sleeping in his cave. <laughs> so there was a lot of joy growing up with my father. He, unfortunately, he passed away when I was 17. So I miss him terribly. Yeah, I bet such resourcefulness that, you know, a lot of us nowadays don't know yes. how to do those sorts of things. Yes. 
are there uh, many protections for the bush? Do do the Aboriginal peoples have to to fight to protect those lands? Yes, yes. Well, there's, there are Indigenous land rights have been a, a fact of life since. Uh, let me get the date quite right. Uh, 1973, I think there was what was called a walkout, a walkout of, of Indigenous people, Gurindji people up in the north of Australia, far north in the Northern Territory, walked off a cattle station where they were basically treated like, uh, like slaves. They weren't paid all over Australia. Aboriginal people weren't paid on farms and estates, especially since 1968 when the government introduced equal wages and all the farmers all sacked all their Aboriginal workers and just paid them with uh, flour, sugar, tea and a piece of meat, basically. Uh, so um, the Gurindji people walked off their station for Lord Vesty, who's an English lord who owned land in the north of Australia, and said, we're not going to work for you anymore, we want land rights. And this was unheard of in Australia prior to that time, even though land rights had been demands, right, been demanded since the 1936 with, with, with some very famous um, Aboriginal um, resistance people who, who fought for land rights back in the 1930s, but never received any. Anyway, after the Gurindji did the work off, walk off, um, our Prime Minister at the time, Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, decided that he would he would make sure that land the land of the Gurindji people was handed back to them, part of it, not the whole of the pastoral lease. And he arranged for the government to buy back part of the pastoral lease and handed it, handed it over in a ceremony in Central Australia. And it was the first act that I understand of, of reconciliation and land rights. And after that, land rights legislation was brought in all over Australia in different states. Different states have uh, dragged their feet a bit, uh, like uh, West Australia and, and Queensland uh, uh, still there isn't really a, a, a sufficient land rights to make people satisfied. But a lot of land has been not so much given back. Sometimes it's bought back by the Indigenous Land Corporation, which buys the land and then and then uh, gives it to the, the Aboriginal people who can show that they identify as being the original people from that land. And that has led to a lot of um, Aboriginal and, and Torres Strait Islander people receiving land. But there have been a number of major court cases like the um, Marbo case and the Wick case in the islands off to the north of Australia where Aboriginal people demanded that the High Court legislate that they were the owners of the land. It's been a long road. It's not over yet. Hey, listeners, this is Colin Mustful, the founder and editor of History Through Fiction and the author of Resisting Removal, The Sandy Lake Tragedy of 1850. I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about my book. Resisting Removal tells the tragic and inspiring story of the Lake Superior Ojibwe, who, in 1850, were told by U.S. government officials that they had to remove from their homelands. The Ojibwe refused, but Minnesota Territorial Governor Alexander Ramsey tried to force their removal, which resulted in the death of 400 Ojibwe at Sandy Lake. Over the following years, the Ojibwe resisted removal, eventually earning permanent reservation homes on their homeland where they still live today. This unfortunate, lesser-known event in American history really exemplifies the lengths U.S. officials went to claim native lands. It is a thoroughly researched novel that includes a bibliography and chapter notes that distinguish for the reader what's fact and what's fiction. It's an important story, and I hope you'll check it out. 
So right now, you can get $5 off resisting removal or any of our titles in our online store using the promo code PODCAST. That's promo code PODCAST. Thank you so much for listening, and now please enjoy the rest of the interview. I'm curious uh, to know more about the the boarding schools that you mentioned earlier. Um, in your novel, Muriging is dropped off at one of these schools by her father. What policies were in place that compelled him to do that? And then what what was the boarding school experience like for these children? Yes. Well, it was the very first Aboriginal school in Australia, and it was set up by... Uh, by Elizabeth Macquarie, who was married to Governor Lachlan Macquarie, who was seen as a very benevolent governor of the colony. And at that stage, it was just one colony. The whole of Australia was one colony. There were not states. And she wanted to set up a school for Aboriginal children because some children had been brought back from a massacre at Appen, which is up in the mountains, of Gundungurra people who were massacred by soldiers sent out on an on a expedition of retribution against the Gundungurra people up in the mountains, sent by her own husband, Governor Lachlan Macquarie, the one who's seen as benevolent, which is why my novel is called The Benevolence. And she had a few children that had come to her house, Aboriginal children who were brought home by the troopers once their parents had been killed and pushed off a mountain. And this is a horrible story, but it is the the history of most colonised nations, both in the United States, Canada, here and all over the world, of course, And uh, those children, uh, she began a school and employed a a teacher called Mrs Shelley and Mr Shelley to look after these children. And after that, the word went out amongst uh, the Barabarungal Darug people out in the town of Windsor where they were living along the Hawkesbury River that Mrs Um, Macquarie was taking children in to teach them English so that they could become people who could interpret between the traditional Aboriginal people and the new white colonisers. So uh, in my mind, and it's historically accurate, that a lot of families decided to deliver their children into the hands of of, uh, Lachlan Macquarie's wife so that the children could be educated for that very reason, to try to stop some of the skirmishes and battles that were happening around where where different... um, different troops, groups of warriors would attack outlying farms to steal the corn and the maize because often those farms had taken their lands where their hunting was and where they also collected the um, yam daisy. The the yams were a type of potato and once maize was put in that paddock, there was no potatoes to eat, wild yams. So um, So the warriors would attack the farm to try to get some of the corn and, uh, and you would have these terrible battles and, and a spear against a musket is, is not equivalent. So that was why the school was begun. And uh, with the reading that I've done, it, it wasn't unhappy times for the children. In that very first school, uh, they were raised with a lot of benevolence, a lot of Christianity, a lot of Bible reading, but they were taught English and were taught to read and write. And uh, for some of the children, um, it wasn't an unhappy time, but I, I think it would have been a very conflicted time because often they've seen their families destroyed. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about some, well, traumatic history, traumatic events, um, and that's you know what you write about in your books. Um, but in writing about some of these very serious and unfortunate topics, 
do you still find joy in in your storytelling? I love it. I mean, most writers would say they wouldn't do it if they don't enjoy it. I think it's a, it's very hard, you know. Benevolence, I think, took me three years to write. Uh, I'm getting faster. <laughs> I'm on my fifth novel now, and I think I'll push that over in two years. So that that's not so bad. Uh, look. Um, I, I, my background is actually as a playwright. I've written 10 plays and had 10 produced. I even had one produced in Phoenix, Arizona, of all things, at Phoenix Theatre uh, called Black Mary, which was about an Aboriginal woman, um, horse thief. And uh, I, I, I get a lot of pleasure in writing dialogue. And uh, sometimes I have an editor who will look at uh, one of a prose novel and say, oh, there's too much dialogue. It's too dramatic. And I just say, do whatever you like, but do not touch the dialogue. You know, I, I really enjoy uh, the idea of bringing characters together uh, in conflict or, or in love. I quite like writing about love relationships too. Uh, and uh, I like to hear the voices speak from the book. And that, that is my, my greatest pleasure is, is writing their voices uh, within the prose. Wow, that sounds, that sounds like it really, um, yeah, definitely sounds like it brings you some joy, some energy, so I think that's that's wonderful. Um, I'm curious. You you said that your book is being published by HarperCollins here this August. We're speaking now in July. Um, what was that process like? Can you tell us who the original publisher was, and then did did they reach out to you? Did HarperCollins reach out to you? Did your agent reach out to them? How does that work? Right. Uh, well, it was published here in Australia, Benevolence, by Magabala books, Magabala Press, and Magabala is the only Aboriginal press in Australia. So uh, I'd been rejected by uh, a dozen mainstream publishers here in, uh, in Australia, mostly in New South Wales, and I sent it to Magabala, and uh, at first they said, oh, we're not sure, we mostly do memoir, we do true stories, we do children's stories, and um, I would just give them a nudge. It took about two years for them to agree to publish it. But when they finally did, there was a wonderful publisher there called Rachel Bin Salah. And Rachel, they're all, most of the people who work at Magabala are of Indigenous descent. And uh, she took on the book and got me a really good editor and, uh, and, and, and we went from there. And when the book came out, um, suddenly I, there was quite a lot of attention to the book because it was an unusual story. It was the first time that a, a first contact story in Australia between Indigenous people and white invaders, the British colonisers, was told from an Indigenous point of view. And this was kind of a revelation for people. It's as though they, a lot of people didn't even know there was a second point of view. And I really enjoyed writing it from an Indigenous point of view because I, it was such an important story of the, of the early arrival of the colony. And uh, anyway, the book came out and in, had quite a bit of attention. It came out as an audio book. And then the, um, we had, there was a rather interesting person working at Magabala who, who works as an agent uh, for overseas buyers as well and she pitched it to HarperCollins and HarperCollins have, a, have an arm called Harpervia and Harpervia is very interested in, in Indigenous voices and, and voices about colonisation and uh, lo and behold they, they made us an offer, made me an offer which was delightful because uh, it's very nice to think that the book will have a wider audience. Australian audience uh, often uh, Often an author only sells about, um, you, you're lucky if you sell 6,000 books. So it's a small reading public compared to uh, United States. And it's also coming out in UK, the United Kingdom as well. So it, it's nice to think that it will get a wider audience. Well, good for you. Congratulations. That must have been very rewarding 
um, you know, to get that deal through. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that yours is one of the first from an from an indigenous point of view about first contact. Are there other uh, indigenous authors in Australia that you might recommend for someone who wants to learn more about the history or just wants to hear from that perspective? Yes, there's many. Um, uh, Alexis Wright uh, is a wonderful author who brought out a book called um, uh, Carpenteria about 10 years ago, which is a magnificent book about colonisation, and it's from her point of view. She's an Indigenous woman originally from uh, uh, north of Australia, I think. Her book is a bit of a masterpiece. Uh, Kim Scott, That Dead Men Dance, he, he wrote this marvellous book in, using a lot of Noongar language, which is the, the Indigenous languages of a combination of languages from West Australia. His book caused a, a big stir because it was a very unusual book. And more recently, some major awards were run by one by Tara June Winch. And uh, her books, she speaks very much with Wiradjuri language and the explanation of the philosophical background of, of the language, and which is a, a really interesting way to, to approach um, literature. Look, there's uh, there's a whole array of Indigenous writers here now, and uh, we're very proud to all stand together. Uh, uh, yes. Well, thank you, Julie, and um, I'm so glad we connected. And congratulations on benevolence and and the future of the series. Um, I, I'm really glad that I had you on today. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's it's been wonderful. Thank you. Yes.